Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You that in Your Word, You have offered us truth. Not just some far distant truth that has no impact on us whatsoever, but that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet. It is a guide. It is the foundation upon which we should build. It is the light that shows us where to go. And so, Lord, we ask that as Your Word is preached this morning, that You would build us up and You would direct our lives. It's in Your name we pray. Amen. So today we um, start a new series called King of Kings, A Christian View of Government. And so the title for today's message is uh, God-Given Rights. I realize that as we enter into this series, I am breaking all kinds of unwritten rules, especially in a secular culture and especially in a largely uh, secular evangelicalism. Shouldn't we only talk about the Gospel? I hope you see that as we walked through Colossians, that the Gospel encompasses all of life. It's not your pastor's job, we hear sometimes, to talk about politics. And yet, as we are learning, politics is not neutral and it's not amoral. It deals with lots of questions of right and wrong. And we are learning firsthand that the claim that uh, there is such a thing as a secular neutrality is a lie. Secularism is a faith. It is a belief system. And it stands in contrast to Christianity. The truth is, since politics and government are a part of God's world, God himself has authority over it. And... He has spoken about it in His Word. And so if we hope to, as a church, declare the whole counsel of God, then the church has to talk about it. It has to talk about it frankly. But I do agree that in normal times, the institutional church should not be partisan. By that I mean we should not necessarily align ourselves with one side or the other. But rather, the church's job is to speak of principles that then inform and hem us in onto what the actual options are. And it's really only in dark times politically where the church should become partisan. For example, if you know anything about Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany, the confessing church, the faithful church, was the one that was incredibly partisan in Germany. And the rest of it was sinning and allowed untold evil to go on. The truth of the matter is, the gospel is inseparably political. Because Christ claims the title, King of Kings. And that the, idea that the idea behind that is that the kings of earth are called to and will one day submit to him, the one true king. To deny that is to deny the identity of Jesus Christ, which is to deny the gospel. Our Protestant forefathers understood this. That's why they were known as the magisterial reformers. What's a magisterial reformer? Well, magisterial comes from magistrate. Magistrate is a governing official. Our Protestant forefathers greatly understood this, but they also, in my opinion, as a Baptist, went a little too far at certain points. For example, you shouldn't execute heretics by using the sword of the government. I think that's an overstep. The blessings, though, today that we enjoy politically largely flow from a rich history of thought on politics by Protestants. And by that I mean Protestant theologians and pastors. The blessings you enjoy are largely flow from the remnants of that. 
For example, the Revolutionary War was deridingly referred to by the Brits as the Presbyterian War. The reason we're having all these problems with our colonies is because there are a bunch of Presbyterians. They referred to the pastors and the deacons of the churches of America as the black-robed regiment. That is, there was a regiment of soldiers out there that were fighting the Revolutionary War, which were the pastors and the deacons of the churches of America. And so some of what I'm going to say to you today will probably sound foreign in your ears, but I can assure you that it stands firmly within the Protestant tradition and teaching, and even more importantly, it stands firmly within the doctrines of Scripture. In fact, uh, some of our forefathers, I'm sure not just mine, but on both sides of my family, I'm sure some of it, and you guys' families as well, came here as Protestants fleeing tyranny from Europe. And yet, uh, with an election around the corner and pressure over the fight over the direction of our nation, I'm sure that if some people heard what I'm saying today, I'd be accused of being a Christian nationalist, whatever that scary term means. It's an ill-defined term meant to scare people into voting one way and to scare Christians into remaining silent. I think the way it's generally used, because very few people use it positively, it's generally used to conjure up images that people want to set up a Taliban-like uh, government here in the United States. And I'm, I read at least somewhat on this topic, and I can tell you I don't know a single Christian who wants that. I don't know a single Christian who's arguing for that kind of a thing. In fact, Christians that I know that are supporting for more Christian influence in the government is precisely because they want more freedom and more liberty, not less. To put it another way, the idea of religious liberty is fundamentally a Christian belief. You won't find it in non-Christian nations. You won't find it in Islamic nations. You find it uniquely in Christian nations. And that's not by accident. And so, what one means by Christian nationalism is a very important definition. Because there have been, and still are, at least in form and letter, Christian nations today. We just saw the death of Queen Elizabeth. She was the head of the state and the Church of England. Ooh, scary Christian nationalism. At least in name only, there is a Church of England, and so Great Britain is to some extent a Christian nation. Now that Christianity in Great Britain is largely dead, but it's not like it's some Taliban-like boogeyman running around. In fact, our neighbors to the north, Canada, is to at least inform a Christian nation. This is the opening line of the Charter of Rights of Canada, which they don't really follow anymore, but it says this, Whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God in the rule of law. That's in their constitution. Right? What God are they talking about? Well, they're talking about the Christian God. Let Take Australia's constitution. Whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland, Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indelusable federal commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland and under the Constitution hereby established. I quote these to you just so you can see that Christian na nationalism is not an anomaly. It's not dangerous and scary, as people like to say. Again, depending on your definition. 
And that can only be used as it's being used today is because we have been intentionally trained to be ignorant on the topic. You've been lied to. Your kids have been lied to in school. Right? A couple generations ago, talking about this wouldn't have even been controversial in public or in the church. But you're being lied to. An attempt, in fact, if you go back in history, the attempt to make a country without a common dominant religious belief system is exceedingly rare, and in some ways it's actually impossible. Right? Cultures and societies exist because they have common beliefs that direct them and serve as the foundation of their society. And as much as we could talk about how scary Christian nationalism is, secular nationalism has been far greater in its evils than anything that we could compare it to. Take, for example, the French Revolution. The French Revolution happened within years of the American Revolution. The American Revolution was largely based in the principles of Christianity, and in fact, Protestant Christianity. The French Revolution, in its rejection of the corruption of Catholicism in the state, of which I'm very sympathetic to those corruptions, that is, being against them, the French Revolution tried to set up their new government without God. And in the place of the church, they formed what is known as the Church of Reason, in which they sought to worship human reason and build their entire society around it. And we, if you know history, you know how that ended. It ended with the reign of terror, with the slaughtering of many people, especially the religious and the rich, through instruments like the guillotine. And then Napoleon came in and took over. Or you could take the USSR and communist China's atheism as imposed by the state and its opposition to Christianity. There's a secular nations for you. Hundreds of millions of people killed. So if we want to line up the two different options of secular nationalism or Christian nationalism, one is hell on earth and one is not. And it's not what the media tells you. So some guiding principles here I want to offer for you this morning as we get into this is I want you to know that I can't cover everything but I'm going to try to cover a lot. And if I don't cover it today, I, I would guess if you have questions, it will be gotten to later in the series. This series is meant to be uh, judged as a unit, not sermon by sermon. So if you miss one, I strongly encourage you to go to our website and listen to the one uh, that you missed. But here are some foundational principles. Foundational principles that will guide this series. This First, is that Christ is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And that means that he has authority over absolutely everything. And so when we say those titles here at Christ Bible Church, we think those titles actually mean something. When we say Jesus is King of Kings, we just say, oh man, he'll be King of Kings someday. We mean he's the King of Kings. And that matters. And that's filled with, with some weight. If you say, for example, that Christ doesn't have authority over this realm of life, then you are making something else higher than Christ in that area of life. That's called idolatry. That's sin. Second principle. The Bible addresses politics and government, and therefore the church must as well. All scripture we read is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, so that the man of God may be wholly equipped for every good work. The Bible talks about this. All of the Bible is given to you for your good, for your instruction. I don't think that those are just words that mean nothing. It means all of the Bible is there to help you in all of life. Third, the church is not the state. And the state is not the church. 
In history, too often the church and the state became one, and that went really poorly. The two are distinct from one another. They are different spheres that are God-appointed. Even if you go back to the Old Testament and you were to say that is a theocracy, you still had separation. There was a king and there was a high priest. And if either one of them crossed over, God judged them. There is still a separate sphere of authority between the church and the state. Fourth, this separation does not mean that the church and the state have nothing to say to each other. They have plenty to say to each other. The church cannot practice human sacrifice. If they wanted to, it would be the state's job to step in and to stop it. The state, conversely, cannot tell the church, though, what they are to believe, nor can the state enforce beliefs upon people through the sword. Different spheres. It is the, church, the church's job to instruct individuals as to what to believe, and it's also the church's job to instruct the state on what is right and what is wrong. Fifth, it is good for the state to recognize God's existence so that it does not attempt to replace God with itself. There is always, 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 always a God of any system. There's always a highest authority. And where there is no recognition of God, the state moves in to take God's place. Sixth, the more a government governs according to God's law and truth, the more general blessings everybody in society has, whether they believe in God or not. Again, we have inherited some of those blessings here today, and we should be thankful for those blessings, and we should seek a renewal of what got us those blessings. Seventh, politics are not ultimate, but they are important. Politics are not ultimate, but they are important. God teaches us that our ultimate hope is not in the rulers of this world, but what happens in this world is important to God and to the church. Too often, people on either side of our current political aisle turns politics into their God. Christians can never do that. You can never look for salvation from the state. But the super spiritual idea of writing off of all of politics as unimportant denies the second great commandment. Basically, politics is the second great command in function. To love your neighbor as yourself. We cannot ignore that. So those are the undergirding beliefs of this series. I think that's a good foundation and I've already spoken way too long before we've gotten into the text today. So when discussing anything of importance, foundations matter. First principles matter because they are first. They are the bedrock, the foundation that we build upon. And if we are going to do theology at all and you want to understand theology, the foundation is always found in two places. God and the God creating. God's character and in creation. And so we're going to start today in Genesis 1, where we see the eternal God speaks the universe into existence. This God, he is the source of meaning. He is the source of life. He is the source of right and wrong, that is morality, truth, goodness, and beauty. And it is this God who defines things in his creation. He's the one who made it. So we don't just get to just as you and I don't get to define our own gender identity, 
the government does not get to self-identify itself as whatever it wants to do. It is not free to do whatever it wants. Government was God's idea. God sets the definition and the limits upon it. Because again, there is always a highest authority. And as Christians, our foundational belief about government and the state is this. The state is not God. Everything else flows from that. God is God and the state is not. Unless you think that's uncontroversial, I I ask you to watch people weeping and gnashing of teeth when their favorite politician loses, or to look back in history and see how kings or pharaohs always said that they were divine somehow. The state was always trying and is always trying to make itself God. There are things that properly fall under the scope of the state's authority, and there are some things that do not. And again, hear me on this, the state's not the one who gets to determine that. Just like you don't get to determine what's right and wrong for yourself, the state does not get to determine what is right and wrong for itself. As we saw throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, it's very clear that the church in this country has not thought this through very well and has largely forgotten its intellectual and theological heritage. We are instructed again and again by men who should know better to have an unquestioning and unending submission to the state. Francis Schaeffer wrote of this in 1981. He said, If there is no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous. That means without a law, a law unto itself. And as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. Christians, we need to fix our eyes on this. The state is limited in what it can rightly command because it is not God. Romans 13 does not give a justification to do whatever it wants to do. As Protestants and Americans, we sit here today because our forefathers understood that in many different ways. Whether it be the American Revolution and the civil disobedience of that, or the fact that we sit here as a desegregated church. It's because Christians understood that some things the state cannot do. And we should be very thankful that our forefathers were better at this than we seem to be today. Thus, we recognize that God alone is the head of all authority, and this includes the home, the state, the workplace, whatever it may be. And Christ, as the God-man, has all authority and is the King of Kings. That title, again, means something. That one day, every king will bend his knee in submission to Christ. And so the risen Christ says at the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. He doesn't say, some authority has been given to me, therefore go. Or he says, only spiritual authority has been given to me now, so go. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me, now go make disciples. Go do your job because you can do it because I have all authority. God gives authority. He delegates authority to the family, to the state, and to the church. He establishes structures. And that is a good thing. And these structures are the fact that God gives them authority that does two things. It legitimatizes authority and it limits authority. Why should one man have authority over the other if all are created equal? 
The answer to that question is he shouldn't unless God legitimatizes it or delegates authority in a certain realm of life, which he has. But God doesn't write a blank check and say, you can do whatever you want with that authority. But rather, I've given you this authority that is limited to do a certain job. And this reality is of greatest importance in the realm of government. For if there is no God, then there are no rights, human rights at all whatsoever. It is no accident that in the Declaration of Independence we read these words, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. If your rights come from the state, then the state can take those rights whenever they want. In other words, their privileges. Darwin cannot impart rights to you. If you are just a random collection of atoms that came out of the primordial ooze, you have no rights. Because there are no rights. If rights are merely cultural conventions, then in times of trial, war, or plague, the government can take these rights from you. And we saw across the world that's exactly how many people think about rights today. They come from the government, and the government can take them whenever it is inconvenient for the government that you have those rights. They're just privileges. And so let's go through Genesis 1 here and Exodus 20 to see some of the God-given rights that God has bestowed upon man. The first right is the primary right, the right that all other rights hinge upon, and that is the right to life, to live. God is the author of life, and in Genesis 1, he creates humanity, male and female, he creates them. He creates them in his own image, and he breathes the breath of life into them. And so, after the fall, God, in the Ten Commandments, forbids murder. Thou shalt not kill. For that is a violation of God's revealed will and his creational standards, his character. We also see from this that humanity, human life, is of higher value than any other life in this universe, besides God, because it bears the image of God. To put it plainly, humans are more valuable than monkeys. They're more valuable than cats and fish, and even more valuable than the most endangered species in the world. Your pet, your dog, is not your child. It is not even close to the value of your child. As fun and as good of a blessing as a dog can be, no dog now or ever will bear the image of the Creator God. And because God gives life, no one has the right to unjustly take another person's life. For to attack an image bearer, whether that image bearer be in the womb or outside of the womb, is to attack the image of God. That's another way of saying it is to attack God himself. And thus God forbids murder. We see that again, as I said, in the Ten Commandments. For a long time, you would see the Ten Commandments in state buildings like courthouses. That is not an accident. They realize that laws have to come from somewhere. Our country used to recognize that laws had to have a foundation, otherwise they become arbitrary to the whims of the mob. Take, for example, the famous legal British scholar, his name was William Blackstone. In the 1700s, he wrote 
the uh, most important law commentaries that ever existed on the British common law so that people in Britain would know where their laws come from. If you ever get a chance to read his commentaries on law, you will see that they are absolutely chock full of citations from the Bible. You don't teach this in school anymore, but it's there. Blackstone's commentaries are foundational to the legal tradition of the West. And here is what he wrote about where laws come from. He says, Upon these two foundations, the law of nature and the law of revelation, depend all human laws. That is to say, no human laws should be suffered to contradict these. So William Blackstone, from which we get the American legal tradition, said all laws have to be built upon one of two foundations. Natural revelation, that is the clear way in which God has ordered the world, or special revelation, Scripture. All laws have to have a foundation. And again, that's why we had the Ten Commandments in our courthouses. And so, we have with it this idea that God forbids murder, and this means that no one has the right to take the life of someone else unless, of course, God grants that, like with capital punishment. You can punish someone who has broken that command by taking their own life. And so we realize that the right to life carries with it another inherent right, and that is the right to self-defense. If someone threatens your life unjustly, you have the right before God to preserve your life, whether that be a threat from an individual or from a state. Hence the just war theory. So if someone is threatening the life or your life, you can defend yourself. Also, if someone is threatening the life of your family member or your neighbor and you can do something about it, you have a moral obligation before God to do something about it, to stop the evil. There are examples of this in the, in the law of God over and over again, most strikingly in Exodus chapter 22. We are given case law example here that says if someone breaks into your house to steal something during the day and you kill them, you are guilty of their blood. But if they break into your house to steal something at night and you kill them, you are not guilty of their blood. Why is that? Well, because it's scarier at night and you have a fear for your own life. That's why. The right to life includes with it the right to defend life, self-defense. And thus, contrary to what some who read the Bible very poorly say, the Bible does not advocate for nonviolent pacifism in every situation. And those Christians who take umbrage at things like the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, is merely an extension of the right to self-defense and the right to life. It's a God-given right. The next God-given right we have is that of liberty. God gives us Liberty in the pages of Genesis, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We should note that this is not a liberty for you before God, that you can do whatever you want, no matter what God says. That is not liberty, but that man was born and created in a state of freedom from the controls of others, specifically the state. If you look at the beginning of creation, you will note that the individual exists but the state does not yet exist. Individuals pre-exist the state. They are more foundational than the state. 
God created Adam and he gave him a realm and a role in creation. He was God's representative. He was to have dominion and to bring things forth from God's creation. But within God's design, there was one command. Adam, you're free to do whatever you want. Just don't eat of that tree. There was an inherent liberty in Adam's life. Man was created with the right to pursue his own happiness. That should ring some bells for you. To pursue his own self-determination on the horizontal plane between men, not between him and God. The state is introduced after sin comes into the world, and as we will see, I believe, next week, largely to deal with the problem of evil in this world, to hem it in and to punish it, to bear the sword. But man was made to be free. This idea of liberty includes with it that the idea of freedom between God and his creator. That is the freedom of religion. The state does not have the right to come between God and his creation or his creation and his creator. Adam receives instructions from God and he communes with God freely. True enough, God will later institute priests in the church as a means of how to commune with his creation, but he bestows authority within that realm. Religious liberty is this, that God created man for himself and that this worship pre-exists the state. The state bears the sword, but not in the context of what you should believe. Finally, in Genesis 1 and 2, we also see the beginning of the family. It's this sphere, the husband and wife and later children, they also exist before the state. This has many implications. God defines marriage. It's between a man and a woman. The state can say that a man and a man is a marriage, but it doesn't change what a marriage actually is. It's a lie. Moreover, God institutes the family as its own proper sphere of influence and authority, and the family becomes the bedrock upon which civilization and the state are eventually built upon. But the, but the family is primary before the state. And so the state has no right over the family structure to redefine it, or, we have to hear this today, to claim children as its own. The state has no right to claim children as its own. Only devilish tyrants like Hitler and his Hitler's youth try to separate parents from their kids. There's a popular idea out there right now that kids are safer with the state than they are with their families. That is from the pit of hell. God, again, there are abusive situations where the state should intervene. But those are the exception, not the rule. God created humanity with an inherent liberty, and it is the state's job to secure that liberty. The final God-given right we will cover today, because I can't cover all of them, is the God-given right to private property. And here we need to be especially careful. We see this in, in Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.15-17, and Exodus 20.15. We need to be careful here because this can be easily twisted and is twisted to wickedness today. When we talk about the right to property, private property, that does not mean that you have the right to own anything and everything that you want to own. Right? My neighbor has that and I want it. I have a right to that. That's not what we're talking about but rather you have the right to the fruit of your own labor. Let me explain that. 
The laborer is due his wages, so if you make something, it is yours. If someone violates that, they have violated your God-given rights. And so, contrasting that, sometimes we see people say things like, well, we have a right to college. We have a right to health care. But if your so-called rights require that you get the fruit of someone else's labor, it is no longer a right, for that enslaves that person to you. That's their labor, their fruit. You have no right over it. That would make you the slave master and them the slave. We are, as Christians, against slavery. Radical, I know. The right to property is found in God's command to Adam, telling him to work the garden and then to enjoy the fruit of his work. You are to work the garden, till it, bring out this fruit, and then guess what, Adam? You get to eat what you have created. Glenn Sunshine is helpful at this point. He writes this, God granted Adam property rights. God told him to tend the garden and to eat the fruit, thus giving Adam the right to the literal fruit of his labor. This is known as the labor theory of property. Government cannot arbitrarily take our property. It can tax us for legitimate functions, because Jesus has said they can, but it cannot just take your property whenever it wants to. This is enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not steal. Why does God say that you can't steal? Well, Because you don't have a right to someone else's stuff. No one is allowed to steal. This includes the government. They have no more right to steal than you do. And therefore, any Christian like Tim Keller, who claims that the Bible can support ideologies like socialism and Marxism just as much as it can support capitalism, is ignorant at best or deceptive at worst. For communism and socialism deny private property rights. You will have nothing and you will like it. Again, that's straight from the pit of hell. God has given you the right to your own stuff. Now, are you to be greedy? Are you to be um, hard-hearted to those who have less than you? No. But God has given you your own stuff. And we must be clear, I'm talking here on a horizontal level, human to human. No one has the right to violate your property rights. But vertically, between you and God, everything ultimately belongs to him. This is why God can say to you, you need to be generous to those who are less fortunate than you. You need to practice charity. You need to give. But the, but the state can't do that. God can do that because everything is his. The state cannot do it at the point of a gun because it is not God and everything is not the state's. Again, this used to be Christianity 101 stuff. The fact that we don't get it anymore is uh, alarming on many levels. One right that is fundamental to creation is that of personal property rights. Theft is wrong, for it violates that right. Redistribution of wealth is wrong, for it violates that right. Covetousness is wrong, for it violates that right in our hearts. And thus, private property rights and the respect of them, or the attacks upon them, will either bring blessing to a people or curses. It will either build us up or it will destroy us. For example, when crime goes unchecked, when theft is not prosecuted, prices go up and law-abiding people suffer because their rights are being violated. When the government steals in the name of charity, the economy, that is the people, are placed in chains and they become slaves to the government. 
This is basic Christian reasoning. Private property rights are fundamental to loving your neighbor and the flourishing society, for that is how God has made the world. Now I'm going to try to make some concluding applications and points here. Where you begin invariably determines what direction you are going to go in. This is why all civilizations will either repent and renew themselves, or they will harden their hearts and they will crumble and they will fall. You cannot live in opposition to God in his world and think that you can do whatever you want and nothing bad is going to happen. We say that while realizing also that there is no utopia in this world until Christ comes back. You're not going to find perfection in the political realm, so stop demanding it. You're not going to get it. So we start in summary here. No God means no rights. Without an eternal, infinite source, something bigger and stronger than the state, then you have no rights, for the state is the biggest bully on the playground then. And whatever the state gives you, if your rights come from the state, they can take from you whenever they want. And I don't care what your political ideology is on that, but whatever side or whatever politician you fear the most, they'll take it from you if it comes from them. Without God, rights are contrived and agreed upon norms that can be changed. They become cultural preferences and cultural preference changes all the time because it's not universal. You see... I'll give you an example. In a moment of clarity that got him rightly ridiculed, uh, President Biden said this of the violation of human rights in China, where they're torturing and killing and, and raping people. He says, culturally, there are different norms that each country and their leaders are expected to follow. That's a man who doesn't understand God-given rights. If you saw the recent uh, expose by NBC News on Christian nationalism, they were interviewing a pastor and he's talked about God-given rights and the interviewer's face just went like white. How could you talk about God-given rights? Well, have you read the Declaration of Independence? I mean, seriously. God-given rights is a good thing even for those who don't believe in God. Why? Because accidental clumps of cells that formed randomly uh, by a self-generated universe have no rights whatsoever. They're just accidental clumps of cells. It's survival of the fittest and rights are then determined by the strongest and then they are forced upon the weak and it's just a power game. But Christians believe in real rights because those rights come from our creator. They are called, thus Christians are called to oppose all violations of those rights, whether it's the right to life in the womb that is being violated or the rights of citizens to private property or we could go on and on and on. Unless you think this is not important. It is this very idea that transformed Western society and through Western society is transforming the whole world because even China wants to be seen like they do affirm human rights. Even though as an atheistic country, they don't believe in human rights. Second, without God and his word, laws become utterly arbitrary because there is no foundation for them. Without a a foundation in God, or if God had, was there and he remained silent, we wouldn't know that rights exist. Rather, law would become merely 50% plus one. And again, that's largely how most Americans think about it. Right? Well, how should we make up a law? Well, we have to get 50% plus one. Then we can make a law. 
we should be asking ourselves, what's the foundation of the law that we want to pass? Third and final, and probably most important to all of this, some desperately want to talk about rights. They desperately want to have these rights, but they don't. They do not want the God who gives them. It's easy to look at the blessings of rights and to say, yeah, this is a good thing, and we should be very thankful that most, even who don't believe in God, still think human rights are a good thing. Because they are a good thing. But if you think you can have the form of freedom while rejecting the one who gives the freedom, you're delusional. It's not the way that it works. So while most Americans profess some belief in some nebulous God who looks more like, or who doesn't look a thing like the God of the Bible, but looks more like a cheerleader or a therapist than the one who gives us law, you cannot reject the real God and still get his blessings. You cannot long have freedom when you are rejecting the one and villainizing the one who gives you that freedom. To have freedom secured on the horizontal plane, we need to submit to the lordship of God expressed in the lordship of Christ, who is the king of kings. And so rights are of great importance, but they come at a cost. You cannot really have them if you do not have Christ. So as important as political battles may be, if you want our people in this nation to flourish, which is a righteous desire, if we want the rights of our neighbors and our children and our grandchildren to be secured, what we need is not better policies, at least not at first, but widespread repentance and faith. God is the source of freedom. The most free nations to ever exist came from those who at least in part built their ideas upon that God. You can't get it without him. And so the call today is next time someone violates one of your rights, someone lies about you, someone takes something from you that, that isn't yours, you see someone get murdered or you hear about a close person or someone you know get killed and that righteous anger comes up within you, know that it's there because God made you in his image. God has built those rights into this world that there are no relativists when you are wronged. But you can't have it without God. He demands repentance and faith. And that soil alone will produce the blessings of a limited government that respects human rights because it knows that God Almighty will judge even the kings of this earth one day. So the call to you is to be thankful to God that he has done these things and for you to bend the knee to Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have created this world in such a way that we see the order, the goodness of your design. May we be a people who care far more about knowing you loving you and sharing you than we do about what is happening on Fox News or the Daily Wire or whatever it is. For it is only upon you and your truth and your word that things will go well. It is only the God who is there that provides us with the blessings of freedom and rights. 
So Lord, we ask, we ask earnestly and hopefully that a revival would come among our people. That your gospel would go forward and that people would see their need of you for the state makes an absolutely evil and wretched God. But you do not. So Lord, may your gospel go forward in power and may many come into your kingdom and may your kingdom come unto this world. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.